You know what I miss, Jay? The WHO. The World Health Organization? Because, Miles, I'm pretty sure they're still around. No, no. Who? You know, the Weird Happenings Organization. They were fun in a way I'm not sure any of their replacements ever touched. I don't know about that. I mean, it is true that Black Air was pretty bleak, but MI-13 definitely had its share of silliness. MI-13? It's what the department turned into. Pete Wisdom led an ops team for a while with, you know, folks like John the Skrull. That's an awfully human name for a Skrull. Well, he was specifically Skrull John Lennon. Why was there a Skrull John Lennon? Because the Skrull Beatles wouldn't have gotten too far with just three members. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 359 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our brave new post-Onslaught world. I mean, okay, these issues, like, talk about Onslaught, but, but I think we can still safely say Onslaught is done. We're done with it. They are at least an ocean away and not directly involved, so that's something. I mean, we're a universe away from Earth-616, and it still took over our lives for a couple months. Fair enough, but Excalibur is, if anything, even busier than we are. That's right, this is indeed an Excalibur episode. Now, you may remember that when last we talked about Excalibur, that was in episode 337, we covered the first four parts of a five-part story, and we were going to save Excalibur number 100, that's part five, the climax and conclusion of the story, to go into one of our Onslaught episodes as sort of an example of how different books did or didn't handle Onslaught happening at the time. But instead, we just decided to cover the completely separate few pages of B-plot in one of the Onslaught episodes and leave the rest to later. Because, y'all, there is a lot going on in this issue. There kind of is. So, if uh, you would like to refresh your memories as to what Excalibur was dealing with in England, you could listen to episode 337, or we could tell you a little about it right now. So... Excalibur, and that's Britain's mostly mutant superhero team, is in bad shape. They are they are in London, and London is in fire. On fire. One of those. There's a lot of fire is the important part. So we can do a quick robot roll call since it has been a while. Who's on the team, Jay? Well, we've got a handful of mutants from the United States. It's Nightcrawler, Kurt Wagner, Shadowcat, Kitty Pride, Colossus, Piotr Rasputin, and Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair. Also, Douglock, although he's not with the team at the moment for reasons we'll get into later. We have some particularly British folks. Captain Britain, that's Brian Braddock, went by Britannic for a while but thankfully doesn't anymore, and Megan. At the moment, just Megan. Also with the team these days are Nightcrawler's foster sister-slash-girlfriend, Daytripper, it's Amanda Sefton, and a purple dragon named Lockheed. And of course, there's the geneticist Dr. Moira McTaggart, who we kinda talked about last episode in a different capacity, whose Muir Island Research Center off the coast of Scotland is Excalibur's base. And whose research assistant, Rory Campbell, will possibly grow up to turn into the homicidally anti-mutant Ahab. 
Plus, there's Pete Wisdom, who used to be a secret agent working for Black Air. Let's see, Black Air, right. They are part of why London is on slash in fire. They are a shady government organization that collects alien and mystical technology for similarly shady purposes and has largely deposed and replaced the Weird Happenings organization once helmed by Alistair Stewart, who is also currently hiding out at Excalibur's Muir Island headquarters. One bit of that alien technology that Black Air has yoinked is the previously mentioned member of Excalibur, Douglock, a techno-organic teen who looks like a cross between fallen new mutant Cypher and additionally fallen new mutant Warlock. He is, in fact, Warlock with Cypher's memories. Nobody knows that right now. That retcon won't happen for quite a while. Black Air, having kidnapped Doug Locke, gave him to the British branch of the Hellfire Club, a bunch of rich mutants who basically just care about power and fancy clothes. That same branch of the Hellfire Club had recently been infiltrated by Captain Britain, Brian Braddock, who was trying to figure out what they were up to as he had gotten word that they had been taken over by evil mutant from the future, Mountjoy. And when last we left our heroes, the Hellfire Club was using Doug Locke's body to siphon power from a literal demon under literal London. And as we mentioned, everything was on fire. And that brings us to the appropriately titled Excalibur number 100, London's Burning. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, Randy Green, and Rob Haynes, inked by Tom Simmons, Jason Martin, Rick Ketchum, and Rob Haynes, colored by Ariane Lenschwak and Jim Hostin, and lettered, as always, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This is number 100, and Jay, can you guess what two things that probably means? Well, it's got to be double-sized. Oh, yeah. And, oh, let me think. We got uh, got some kind of special cover treatment. I'm thinking maybe wraparound, foil. Sex Calibur, it's not going to have a foil cover. Wraparound? Just a wraparound cover, that's right. It's a pretty cool cover, actually. Uh, so, yes, this is number 100. And as we mentioned, this issue was an onslaught tie-in. It's technically an Impact 2 issue. But we already covered the relevant parts for Onslaught in one of our Onslaught episodes. That's where the X-Men show up on Muir Island, discover that Professor X had a bunch of plans for how to kill the different X-Men if they went bad, including himself. And then the X-Men took that information and left. Now again, we covered the first part of the story in episode 337. Now we're finally getting to the rest of it. And as promised, London is on fire. And its population has gone mad and is killing each other. It actually reminds me a hell of a lot of what was going on at the time in Manhattan with Onslaught, or at least with what Onslaught was supposed to be doing, you know, feeding on the fear and despair of everyone. Although ironically, it's totally unrelated in this case. Yeah, it turns out it's just a bad day to be on uh, English-speaking Earth, I guess. I think Australia is okay. I mean, to what extent Australia is ever okay? Mm. I do love the recurring theme of us, like, low-key messing with Australia for basically no reason. Have have you seen Australia? They have fucking kangaroos there. It's true. Those motherfuckers. It's like the Florida of Earth. <laughs> anyway, Margali Sardos, that is the witch who is Amanda Sefton and Nightcrawler's adoptive mom... She, of course, is in a new body, posing as the Red Queen of the Hellfire Club, and when last we left her, she was attempting to siphon power from the big demon below London by putting her hands on the severed, well, not severed, but uh, altered head of Douglock. 
Because Doug Locke, his body, his normal human-looking body, yeah, they stretched it out like it was a Play-Doh bit that they were rubbing between their hands, and now it is a literal physical cable between Doug Locke's head and the demon. I'm not sure if that's how um, power plants normally work, but I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's see, it was the mid-90s, so, uh, we wouldn't have, like, Cat 6 Ethernet yet. Would we, would we have even had Cat 5? Probably not. I don't know how you have enough bandwidth for demon power. Anyway, point being, we saw some of this last issue, uh, in number 99, and there was a really cool visual then. Margali's eyes were replaced by these toothy mouths like she was the Corinthian from Sandman. That's still happening here, but unfortunately, due to a coloring error, it looks like one half is just her eyelid and the rest is the white of her eye, and so the effect is lost and it's not as creepy. As for the demon, well, it's it's a demon. It's a really generic demon. It's a muscular, dark red horns dude. Its initial attack on the minds of London is done. Now it feeds on the madness it has caused. It has been starved of the taste of chaos and murder for too many centuries. And so the evil done above is being eaten. Like we said, what Onslaught was apparently supposed to be about, according to Road to Onslaught, but actually kind of wasn't. While Margali attempts to siphon the demon's power below London, in the Hellfire Club proper, Brian Braddock, uh, dressed in his, his new Captain Britain suit, is confronting the Black Queen. Okay, let's talk about this suit, because we've seen versions of this suit many times, and this particular version of it at a very specific time. Now, this is Brian's old force field suit. This is the one that was partially destroyed in Inferno. Still Inferno, that's right. Yeah, this is the one that had sort of an X-looking logo on it. I think it was supposed to be more of a Union Jack thing, but that's how I always see it. As opposed to the triangular one he got a little bit later, which actually belonged to Captain Marshall after the original suit was, like you said, messed with in Inferno. Now, that suit contained a force field whose job was to tamp down Captain Britain's powers, but he's altered it since. And so now it's doing things like protecting him from the wave of madness going through London. He's also changed it up visually because now instead of having a white background for the majority of the suit, it's black. And we saw this in Days of Future Tense. We saw this in Excalibur number 94, I believe it was. That dark future that has been sort of serving as the threat of what could happen if things go wrong since that issue, that this storyline seems to very much be leading up to. So that's part of how you raise the stakes. You have increasingly numerous visual allusions to the terrible, terrible dark future that you don't want to happen. So, meanwhile, in the dark present, the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club has killed the Black King after he started going mad from the demon's influence. She is working for Mountjoy, who has possessed the Hellfire Club's scribe. Yeah, there's a brief fakeout where Brian thinks it's the Black Queen. Nope, nope, it's scribe, who then just turns into Mountjoy, the long-haired fancy lad from the future who's a real jerk. Now, this Black Queen is named Emma Steed because, you know, references never get old— and she is the 616 version of a mutant we first saw in the Age of Apocalypse. That's Damask from Excalibur. Oh yeah, the one with the sort of blades on chains that she uses to psychically skin people. One of those mutant powers that doesn't exactly make sense, but sounds pretty scary. I think they think it sounds cool. 
on the one hand, I kind of wish Damask got a bigger role in the 616. On the other hand, it is kind of fun just having these central AOA characters just be kind of chumps that go down quickly in the main universe. Like, it's not always going to be parallel. Thankfully, Brian's force field isn't just good at protecting him from going mad and killing a bunch of people. It also helps protect him from Mountjoy's anti-mutant bullets that he shoots at him. Uh, do you remember those? The ones that Brian Raddick's dad worked on that had little faces, like those bullets from Roger Rabbit? Um, yeah, Mountjoy's got those, and they start burrowing into Brian's force field like they're those slow-moving weapons from Dune. I will take your word for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, both versions, actually. I kind of miss the old David Lynch version. Like, the visuals were just so rudimentary, and that gave them a, a certain charm. Also, that movie is just bananas and doesn't make a ton of sense. But, you know, it's Lynch. Whatever. That's not what you go to Lynch for. So I got to admit, um, I am I am not a massive Dune fan. I'm not, I don't have anything against it. I read the novel and liked it fine, but I haven't really sought out either movie. I mean, I know there's been a lot of criticism of the new one in terms of casting, and I... I don't feel that I could speak to the validity or, or, or not of that. I just don't know enough. Is it because Kyle MacLaughlin's not in it? Uh, you know, that may be part of it. But the uh, visuals and the pace are outstanding. Uh, it's the same guy that directed Blade Runner 2049, which I also loved. Like, I will watch anything that dude does. Just gorgeous. Anyway, point being, Brian's able to dodge around inside his force field, which is awesome, and beats the hell out of Mountjoy. And that's it for Mountjoy for now. I love Brian's take on this. He's just fed up. Don't bleed so loud. You're giving me a headache. You know, for so long, Brian was written terribly. Like, I never liked the way Scott Lobdell wrote Brian. And Warren Ellis certainly writes Brian differently than, say, Chris Claremont or Alan Davis did, but I like this version. Well, he's, he's a very, very different version of the character. He's one who's been through a lot and who's metamorphosed pretty significantly. Yeah, he's not the sort of, like, uh, the butt of everyone's joke the way he was in Davis's run. He's just sort of over all this stuff. Well, because he's no longer the, you know, appropriate, physically perfect, rich, kind of obnoxious aristocrat who you want to be the butt of everyone's joke. Like, he's he's now on much, much more even footing with his with his teammates. Well done, Brian Braddock. It's a shame that Ben Robb won't write very much about you. Anyway, on Muir Isle, after all the Xavier Protocol stuff, I mean, okay, technically before, Amanda Sefton, that is Day Tripper, the sorceress who is Nightcrawler's adoptive sister, and also girlfriend, uh, yeah, she teleports in, she's been gone for this entire storyline, and she is in bad shape, and she explains to Moira, yeah, so while I wasn't in this comic, it's not that the writer forgot about me, I assure you, it's that I was fighting my mom, Margali. I gave her the Soul Sword after the Soul Sword trilogy many issues ago, and, uh, whoops, turns out bad plan, because she used the sword to kill every mage ahead of her on the Winding Way so that she could be top sorceress. Also, she got herself a new body. Um, everything is terrible. My bad. After a quick patch up in the med lab, Amanda teleports back off to try to help Excalibur. Excalibur themselves are in their hovercraft, the Midnight Runner, heading to the, aforementioned, on fire, London. And, of course, Pete Wisdom is Warren Ellis' favorite character. He's really the focal character of almost this entire run. So a lot of what we see is through his eyes, including one of my favorite little bits of comic relief, his horrible, horrible antagonistic relationship with Lockheed. He wants to kill me, burn my clothes, and hide all my cigarettes. He told me. To which Kitty responds logically. Lockheed can't talk. I heard him. 
She stole all my stuff and told me to back off, or... Nasty man's gone mad, Lockheed. You gotta imagine Pete Wisdom as just exceptionally British. Um, I'm not even gonna try. Uh, yeah, we can't be that British at all. I, um, was reminded by my mom recently that when I was a kid, I would do, um, accents for different nationalities, and I feel like maybe that's not something I'm ever going to attempt to replicate for quite a few reasons, really. Uh, the point being, Scratch, one of the Black Air agents and Pete Wisdom's nemesis, because Pete Wisdom doesn't like killing people for no reason and Scratch really does, he's actually running out of the Black Air building amid all of the chaos— and wisdom wants answers. And so, true true to his surname, he uh, jumps out of the flying plane. Yeah, he apparently slows his fall by firing his hot knives out of his fingers downward to create thermal updrafts. Okay, Jay, is that cooler or less cool than when Age of Apocalypse Logan did kind of the same thing by jumping hundreds of feet down toward a crashing airship that was on fire to ride its thermal updrafts? I wouldn't recommend either. Okay, but what about that thing Cyclops does when he's falling real far and he, like, blasts the ground to sort of buoy himself upward? That actually makes marginally more sense. Kind of like how the ships in the Expanse turn around. A little. Anyway, there's some tension here because Wisdom has done everything he can to not be who he was, to get past the villain, kind of, that he was as a member of Black Air. He doesn't want to kill anymore for starts. And this is the one guy who might get him to kill. Is he going to kill this killer and himself become a killer? He's not, because Lockheed is going to intervene and set Scratch on fire. Oh yeah, there's this wonderful, wonderful moment. After this legitimately brutal fight, like it's a very well-drawn, well-paced fight, and uh, Wisdom acknowledges the help he got from Lockheed, who says, I still hate you! It's great. As for the rest of the team, Kurt gives them the type of pep talk he's gotten very good at in this era. He is an excellent leader, as opposed to that time he led the X-Men for like five minutes before the 13-year-old had to take over. And in they go. And this is a trope we've seen, I don't know, I feel like in a lot of fiction where a team, yeah, like a team goes into a base and at every step someone has to stay behind to hold off whatever. Like Colossus blocks gunfire from the Madden Black Air soldiers— Megan uses electromagnetism to hold off the techno-organic brood that we've known that Black Air has for a while. Nightcrawler sword fights the Red King and has a great time doing so. Unglaublich! Not only am I a finer swordsman than you, but I am far more beautiful. And near the end, near the emaciated Margali, whose substance has pretty much been sucked out of her by the demon at this point, Kitty jacks into Douglock's tentacle strand and, um... Uses combat IT skills. That's it. Read Douglock's brain as a disk drive. Give me a root directory. Read files by date. Show me the newest ones. Aha! Deep breath. Delete the newest file. That brings Douglock back, effectively. He's still hardwired into the demon, but they can just sever that connection physically. As someone who does IT for a living, albeit not combat IT, this is awesome. Like, so often you see IT presented media in a way that is just utter goddamn nonsense. I'm I'm not against that. I love Die Hard 4. That's fine. But this? Okay, the idea that you could, like, hack into the technarchy's operating system using standard Earth IT techniques, I'm not so sure about that. But a standard Earth IT techniques go, that, like, kind of makes sense and that's cool 
Kind of like Independence Day, come to think of it. Hmm, that didn't make much sense. Maybe I'm giving this too much credit. Anyway. So once the good guys have won on the ground, Wisdom's buddies in the intelligence community finagle things such that Black Air and the Hellfire Club London are shut down and Excalibur are exalted as heroes. So everything's good. The bad guys have no more power, at least for the time being. The demon has been banished after being severed from Margali's Douglock strand. Mutants in England aren't hated nearly as much as they are in America after what is happening as we speak with Onslaught. It's a hell of a happy ending. And I think most importantly, Days of Future Tense at this point looks like it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's been pretty effectively precluded by the events of this issue. Which brings us to Excalibur 101, Quiet. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenchwek, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. True to its title, this is this is a really quiet issue. It's basically the team recovering from what down in London while starting to process what's happening at the same time in America. And we open with Moira McTaggart listening to a recorded message, part of the Xavier Protocols, the many messages that Xavier left behind just in case something ever went wrong. And this message uh, takes on a bit of a new light, giving the last year and change of, uh, of our time. Moira, if you are hearing this, then you are here alone. And, if I know you, driving yourself insane with options. I recorded these messages in the knowledge that they would only be heard if I died or went mad. In either situation, Moira, Muir becomes the sole repository of all the mutant-related data I have gathered. Furthermore, if my X-Men and I are gone, then you, Moira, my best friend, you are the last outpost of the dream. Can we tangent a bit and talk about the handling of mental illness in fiction? Because you know more about this than I do, and I would love to hear your take. So here we basically have Xavier saying, I have a computer program that if I die or if I go mad, we'll do this thing. So whether he's dead or alive, that's pretty clear, right? Like he's good at faking mm. his own death, but he is either dead or alive. Yeah. It treats being mad as a similarly Boolean state, which seems weird to me. I assume that in this case he's going with something along the lines of the legal definition of insanity, um, which is Boolean, although whether appropriately so is, is the subject of significant debate that we don't have four hours to summarize right now. Okay, so basically he programmed the computer to say, if these traits are true, or if these other traits are not true, then it counts. I would assume so, yeah. Okay, I, I feel a little better about that, I guess. That's really the only way you could make a program like that work or make any sense. Like, you'd give it a, a set of criteria, and it would kick on under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, although, I mean, man, with all the focus on artificial intelligence and current X-Men, that just has my brain thinking about that. But that's not part of this plotline. What is part of this plotline is Excalibur getting back in triumph from the way that number 100 ended. And Excalibur returns to Muir Island triumphant with no idea of the onslaught stuff that's gone down because they've been completely disconnected. Yeah, yeah, not so much with the smartphones back in the mid-90s. And here's where we get the other meaning of that title, Quiet, because the narration makes it very clear that that's the other 
purpose of the issue being called that. That's Excalibur's response when Moira tells them what happened. Initially, they just don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. This is just too much. Now, their first instinct is, of course, to head to New York. But Onslaught's EMP and the resulting chaos make that functionally impossible. And their medship is damaged enough that they can't go as support. On the upside, the Prime Minister's office in England is, uh, having gotten rid of Black Air, is reinstating Alistair Stewart to head all of the weird government organizations. He's going to be running a department called The Department, which I guess kind of makes sense. I mean, we know that UNIT was the inspiration for the Weird Happenings organization from Doctor Who, and Doctor Who just introduced The Division, and so now we have The Department, and obviously that wasn't deliberate because that Doctor Who story happened, like, recently, and this didn't. But the point is, there are two British things I know, and they are Doctor Who and Excalibur, and there is a way that they overlap. Okay, then. Right, Governor. I'm sure that was one of the things I said when I used to do impressions, but probably different. Meanwhile, we get a lot of quiet personal moments and conversations among the team members. Um, Kitty and Piotr, as he finds some degree of peace with Excalibur. Rain and Douglock, as Douglock is finally establishing a personality distinct from Doug's memories. He offers, actually, to change his face so he's not you know, a perpetual reminder of, of Rain's dead best friend, whom he's not. But Rain says, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's a nice reminder to keep, and he's wearing it well, so he might as well go on. Okay, that's really sweet, and just thinking about that gets me all emotional. I I love Wolfsbane and Doug Ramsey and Warlock slash Douglock. Like, I would love to see them interact more and more in the modern era. Like, they're all around in the modern era, and that's just not something that really happens so much, and that's a little sad. Rory Campbell is still wrestling with his possible future when Alistair Stewart shows up to offer him the position of mutant liaison for... The department. Um, so starting a program of discovering and offering aid to British mutants, and Rory agrees. Hopefully he won't lose any more limbs and get super evil because of that. Kurt and Amanda are reconnecting over a uh, narrow Flynn laser disc after their last round of, of wildness with, with their respective uh, adoptive and, and biological mother. Man, I know they were inconvenient, but I wish laser discs had caught on. I mean, they were big silver records that looked like they came directly out of a spaceship, and I loved them. They, they did come out of a spaceship. That's how they were made. Oh, well, well, I feel great about that. That's way better than being pooped out by a giant sentinel. No, I mean, that was the spaceship. It was a giant sentinel that pooped out laser discs. I feel so conflicted about all of this, Jay. The future is is, is a complex state i guess so uh well let's talk about captain britain and megan then uh they corner pete wisdom and captain britain brian very solemnly tells pete look i used to get all these flash forwards to this dark future and i'm not getting them anymore so i think we prevented it but i think to fully prevent it to lock in our safety from days of future tense you have to tell kitty pride that you love her to save the future, Pete. The future. They're definitely fucking with him, right? Oh, they're totally fucking with him, and I love it! It's so good, and like, this isn't just a little joke here, like, we're gonna come back to this. I love the idea that he's, like, less experienced with the mystical shit, so they just use it to mess with him continually. 
And we talked before about how great Brian Braddock is in this era, and I think that's part of it, is that he does have this very dry sense of humor, and he's allowed to be more competent, and he and Megan together are, like, ultra-powerful when they do that. Yeah, um, they, 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 they could be, like, very low-level supervillains just using these skills. Mm-hmm. But they're not, because they're lovely, and they continue to be lovely through most of their continuity. They're both doing great stuff these days, even if Brian's having a rough time. Now, Piotr, Kitty, and Kurt all still really want to go to New York, but Moira points out that they need to stay safe as backup, because there are mutants outside of the U.S., and if things really, really go bad in New York... Excalibur is kind of the last line of of the dream, as as Xavier told, told Myra in the recording. Um, so basically, they their obligation is to stay out of it and to survive. Yeah, remember this is still in the middle of onslaught when this is all all happening. So while we the readers know that all the mutants are going to be okay at this point, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to be okay. That bugged me for a sec, and then I remembered that we cover issues a little bit out of order, so so it actually does make sense. So, I don't know, Jay, what do you think about this? What do you think about this as a way to keep Excalibur out of Onslaught, and do you think they should have been kept out of Onslaught? I think it's actually one of the better reasons to keep a superhero team out of a fight. <laughs> Fair point, yeah. And, you know, Onslaught was already just so overstuffed, and while mm-hmm. some of the members of Excalibur have pretty strong connections to Xavier, some of them have, like, no connections at all. That's something this issue actually specifically talks about in the narration, so... Well, and some of them specifically have regional connections to other areas. Uh, true. True as well. Very, like... Like, Captain Britain's primary responsibility isn't to the world as a whole. It's to Britain. Yeah, I mean, every time he goes to America, he either gets put in a giant pinball machine or has to deal with demon bullshit. Or both. Mm, or both. Themed pinball machine. Anyway, that brings us to Excalibur number 102, After the Bomb, written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, inked by Rob Haynes, Jason Martin, and Scott Koblish. Hi, Scott. Colored by Ariane Lunchwek and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And here is where we get the actual aftermath to Onslaught. Although we still promise you, listeners, Onslaught is over. For real. Uh, Anyway, Nightcrawler and Moira McTaggart are watching the news, and they're discovering, yeah, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, they're they're gone, they're dead, and the mutants seem to be to blame. This has gone to hell across the pond. Brian, of course, reminisces about fighting side-by-side with Captain America back in the day that, you know, when he thinks of the term superhero, deluded as it might be, Captain America is the ideal that he keeps coming back to. And there's an interesting conversation between him and Megan here about Captain America and Captain Britain and just how differently their respective nations see them. Like, that Captain America is this beloved, almost idolized public figure in America regardless of political opinion. And Captain Britain, like, he's respected, but he's just sort of a guy They talk about how in British culture you just don't see that level of intense patriotism the same way the United States uh, has it. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know a ton about British culture. What they're saying here, I think, is kind of the case. But that just got me thinking about if Captain America were indeed real here in 2021, I can't imagine him or anyone or anything being universally beloved across the political spectrum. Like, everything seems to get filed into one bin or the other— 
or is attempted to be claimed by one bin or the other. Like that kind of universality that Brian's talking about, like it's just foreign to me. Well, as ironically, Excalibur will be as their actions in London are increasingly politicized. Right, yeah, Excalibur is being used as kind of a symbol by various various British politicians to kind of push their own agendas. Um, also, I believe it's Pete Wisdom who specifically cites a lot of the heroes who died as conservative icons, conservative symbols in the U.S., which is a really interesting angle in terms of both perceptions of those characters at the time, you know, meta-perceptions among superhero writers, and perceptions of those figures from outside the U.S., yeah, that is fascinating. And, you know, I can kind of see it. I mean, the Fantastic Four are the nuclear family. Like, they are so goddamn Norman Rockwell. And the Avengers, they're a government-approved team, and they are specifically an American team, at least during most of their eras. Like, they kind of are the enforcers of the status quo. I mean, okay, we're not Avengers readers. I'm sure there are many times when they're not, but that seems to be the perception. At the same time... What are superheroes, if not privatization of the state security apparatus and the state's monopoly on violence? You know, that's a really good point. Well, and we've seen it, not to get too far outside the issues we're covering here, but we've seen so many times, like, vigilantes, superheroes being outlawed for one reason or another, or being forced to register, or whatever. I mean, in Devil's Reign, like, right now, with the Daredevil stuff, that's a version of, of what's happening. And so, yeah, I think that monopoly on violence, uh, to which you referred, like, that's very much a relevant topic to superhero comics in particular, in addition to, you know, the real world. All of that aside, uh, Megan and Brian also decide they should probably set a date for their wedding. Uh, you remember how they've been engaged, like, since Alan Davis's run and nobody's really mentioned it? They've been very busy, and Brian spent a lot of that time in the time stream. True. Well, they'll have to wait even longer because the wedding won't actually happen until the last issue of Excalibur Volume 1, which is number 125. But after that, they get to have an awesome daughter named Maggie, who I love a lot. Yeah, Maggie's great. Yeah. Daytripper, Wolfsbane, and Colossus are not so much doing the quiet reflection thing. They're looking for Margali Sardos because, yeah, she was getting sucked dry by robots and demons and stuff, but she also just sort of vanished at the end of number 100, and that can't be good. Yeah, not knowing where Margali Sardars is pretty much never ends well, and it won't in this case either. Yeah, yeah, they, they head to her caravan to see if maybe she just went home, which, I mean, okay, she probably didn't, but if it turns out she did and you didn't check, you're gonna kick yourself, so you wanna check there first. They don't find her, but they do hear maniacal laughter echoing directionlessly. And we'll find out with a retcon much later what I guess is happening here. So, at some point around here, we don't know exactly where or when, Margali switched bodies with Amanda Sefton. So, where, quote, Margali really is right now is imprisoned in limbo by the demon lord Belasco. Except maybe that's Amanda's mind in Margali's new body, and Margali's mind is in Amanda's only body. Like, at some point, that's going to be a thing. We do not know when. It's ambiguous. Which means Margali is hooking up with her kid, which is really creepy. Uh, you know, in researching this bit, I did find a lot of discussion of that on the on the internet. Uh, the internet is aware. Good, because... Uh... You know, I'll give Margali Sardos one thing. She is way better at pretending to be somebody else than Dark Beast. Most people are. I feel like you and I would be better at that, and we are not super scientists. Well, we'd do better research. Dark Beast just kind of 
floundered around, did some murders, and went, all right, I've probably got this. Yeah, I love that the main thing he does is this incredibly complicated scientific procedure to alter his appearance, and then he forgets to, like, learn what Hank McCoy on this Earth, like, had been doing for most of his life. Well, he kills a bunch of people who could tell them apart, but they're also all people who he was unlikely to run into anyway. Or who could have told him, like, oh, by the way, uh, Hank McCoy has told me these important stories about, like, his interactions with Iceman, or the stuff he was working on. And his recent past at all. God damn it, Age of Apocalypse, Hank McCoy. You're bad at your job. You do get cool robot spider legs as your lower half like Darth Maul later, though. Hey. Yeah. But this wouldn't be Ellis's Excalibur run without a complex relationship with government agencies, and I do love me this narration. Outside and above the Muir Island hangar, there is the noise of new games being played between Excalibur and the British government. Badminton. Well, no, actually what's happening is that Moira is passing along the various mutant criminals slash patients that she'd been holding in her holding cells to the department, that being Alistair's new organization, of course. Alistair and the department will be back, but, like, not really for a long time. Alistair Stewart won't be prominent again until freaking at 2007 in a Pete Wisdom miniseries. He's very busy. Uh, that's true, that's true. He's got a lot of patience to, like, deal with and hopefully make better decisions with than Excalibur ever did. And a whole department to run. The department, in fact. Indeed. As for Pete and Kitty, they've been at the pub, of course. And as they leave, they find gunmen waiting for them, like, trying to intimidate them. So, fight time and banter time, as Wisdom says. You made me throw my cigarette away. You must be punished. And Kitty adds, I hate guns so much, and I'm not fond of your arm either. I do enjoy them as a couple, and part of that is because Wisdom has the, well, wisdom to recognize that his girlfriend Kitty is like 99% of the muscle between the two of them. She is a trained freaking ninja. You see that beautiful woman dancing on the throats of your gunman? That's my girlfriend, that is. You know, there are some ways where Pete Wisdom very specifically does not embody toxic masculinity, and here's one of them. Anyways, it turns out these guys are from interests inside the White House, and they are there to let Excalibur know, and specifically the American mutants on Excalibur know, that they are not welcome in the U.S., and soon won't be welcome anywhere. And Pete and Kitty decide what they're going to do, having extracted that information, is to send the conscious member back gagged along with Moira's former patients. Which, you know, that's a shitty thing to do to somebody, but in this case, yeah, fuck that guy. And then they all go back to the pub. When they find out about Professor X being arrested by the U.S. government. And that is not the last issue of Ellis's run, we'll get to that in a moment, but kind of the last issue of Ellis's plot. What do you think about this as sort of a denouement of the whole thing? I really like that the last couple issues, that the issues that parallel Onslaught for Excalibur are really quiet, really personal issues. I think that works very, very well. I think that's always been where Excalibur was at its strongest. And I think it creates a really good and welcome contrast to what's going on in the rest of the line at that point. I very much agree, yeah. Excalibur is really isolated. Like, that seems to have been something that Warren Ellis has done pretty deliberately in this run, from the core X books, that is. 
And as a result, we've gotten some strong character work. And that hasn't been symmetrical, you know? Like, we've learned far less about, say, Wolfsbane or Colossus or Rory Campbell than we have about Ellis's clear favorite characters, Pete Wisdom and Kitty Pride. But it still works. And, you know, I'd been grumpy about Wisdom just being shoehorned into this book suddenly and becoming the focus, but... I think this era really, really works with him as one of the focal members, especially with Kitty. All that age stuff aside that we've already talked about a million times. Yeah. That brings us to Excalibur number 103, Bend Sinister Reprise. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Scott Koblish and Bob Wyacek, colored by Ariane Lenchwek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Bend Sinister without the word reprise was the title to Ellis's first issue back in number 83. And there are some thematic connections here, although I think the title is the main link. So everything, Kitty wakes up to discover that everything has gone extremely weird on Muir Island. The landscape is all fucked up, and there are alternate universe duplicates of Kurt, Kitty, and Piotr running around everywhere. And as far as that landscape, it's sort of a small-town, idyllic, if sprawling, village. And on one of the shop signs is... A penny-farthing bicycle. I mean, I'm so proud, Jay. I get to use a thing you introduced me to to make a connection I otherwise wouldn't have. Because this has got to be a reference to the prisoner, right? Like, it has to be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you. You caught your first prisoner reference. I, I, I did, I did, and I couldn't have done it without you. And also a bunch of listeners who agreed that I needed to watch that, and eventually I did, and it was great. So the team deduces pretty quickly that, yes, it's overrun with, with duplicates of, of these this, these particular three, and these are the only characters we see navigated, uh, whether or not other characters are, are dealing with their own um, duplicates elsewhere is, is never explored or, or particularly developed. Um, but these three determine that it's some kind of logic puzzle, and these are constructed alternate versions of themselves. They're not actually alternate universe duplicates, despite resembling many that we've seen. Yeah, they figure that any real versions of the three of them would not just accept their location, uh, accept this new status quo, they would fight against it. And they also probably wouldn't be as snarky, because, okay, Piotr's not very snarky, but Kitty and Nightcrawler definitely are, and I love their responses to this situation. Nightcrawler especially here is pretty great. If I'd had a normal life, I'd quite cheerfully go mad and fall over right now. But as I've led an utterly ridiculous life, I'd have to say that we're apparently surrounded by alternate timeline versions of ourselves. Excalibur. We've got some recognizable versions of of the characters here who are who are a few we've seen on the page before uh well the ones that jumped out at me first were kitty from the age of apocalypse and kurt and kitty from nazi earth from early excalibur that's earth 597 but one that as i was reading about this i realized existed was a character named night creeper a cross between nightcrawler and dc's the Creeper, and this was from the 1996 Marvel vs. DC crossover. And wow. yeah, yeah, those characters actually look a lot alike, it turns out. Huh. Right? Alas, we're missing the proletarian. I mean, he wasn't from an alternate universe, technically. He was just from Earth 616 when Arcade brainwashed Colossus into wearing overalls. 
But these aren't technically the actual alternate universe versions, so there's no reason not to have the pro- proletarian represented. You know, that's a really good point, yeah. And we do get some we've never seen before. Like, we see Colossus as the Red Guardian, who, if you've seen Black Widow, you recognize that general look. Um, there's a trio of Kitty as a dominatrix, with the other two as kind of her slaves. She looks kind of like the version of Jean from Shadow X, from New Excalibur, actually, later on. There's a, there's, there's a set of the three of them as Christian clergy. Yeah, Kitty has a Messianic Jew symbol on a pendant she's holding, which is interesting. So clearly this was at least, like, thought about. But also, uh... I know, right? So Kitty determines that they have to figure out what distinguishes the three of them, the originals, from their duplicates. For her, ultimately, she realizes it's trying her hardest and not giving in to her temper. And as she realizes that, all the other kitties disappear. And the outer three rings of the nine-ringed map that they got from a shop disappear as well. And Kitty figures figures this out at the same time that many readers, I suspect, do. Wait a minute. Nine rings dealing with mystical bullshit. God damn it, this is Margali Sardos doing the Inferno thing again, isn't it? I mean, not like the Inferno Marvel crossover, but like Dante's Inferno. She's she's kind of a one-note villain in some ways. I mean, the first major time the X-Men encountered her was when she was mad at her son Nightcrawler and shoved him into the Inferno, and Kitty was there for that, even if she didn't get to come along. That was the birthday where Wolverine gave Nightcrawler a photo of, of Wolverine, right? Yeah, and then Wolverine ate, like, the biggest turkey leg anyone had ever seen. I love that issue so goddamn much. So, Kitty's got her duplicates out of the way. Piotr figures out that what distinguishes him is his belief in pacifism, that that not fighting is not the same as giving up, but instead for him represents finding a better way to live for himself. And Nightcrawler's is a little ambiguous, but it seems to be that despite everything he's been through, and it has been some garbage, and he's had to lead the team through that garbage, which is a lot of responsibility, but he still has a sense of joy. He still has a sense of humor. And Kitty's actually the one that reminds him of that. She sort of, like, makes fun of him a little, and he laughs, and all the other Kurt's just stop and smile and applaud before vanishing, which is such a Kurt Wagner thing. I love that. And unbeknownst to the lot of them, or sort of picked up on, this whole thing is a test set up by Belasco, the demon lord of Limbo, uh, for when they inevitably come after him to rescue Margali, or I guess Amanda, in Margali's body. Yeah, yeah, it's basically Belasco having captured Margali and using Margali's go-to Inferno pastiche for his own purposes. We'll get back to all that later uh, in X-Men Unlimited number 19, I want to say. But, um, yeah. So they all reappear back in the real world uh, as everyone's been wondering where they were and everything seems to be okay. And Pete finally tells Kitty he loves her to the respective uh, admiration and amusement of the other parties, depending on their relative involvement of convinc- in convincing him to do so. And it's adorable. And that's the end of Warren Ellis' run on Excalibur. Very strange final issue. Like, we got that big denouement in number 102, and then there's this. What do you think about this one? Not a lot. I, I I feel bad saying that, but I this is this is an issue that that feels just kind of there. It doesn't leave me with any particularly strong feelings. A lot of the revelation in it feels a bit forced. Like it's very much a setup that 
that that kind of corners the characters into stating obvious central motifs of their own characterization for the audience. As that, it's fine. Um, it's not particularly remarkable. It's not particularly remarkably bad. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the characters that it focuses on, Kitty was one of the focal characters of Ellis's run. Nightcrawler kind of was. Colossus really wasn't. I mean, the main thing that they have in common that I can think of is they're the three characters that used to be on the X-Men at various times. Yeah, that was that was the only link I could think of, too. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, Belasco certainly has interacted with the X-Men specifically more than, say, Excalibur. He's interacted specifically with all three of them, um, those characters, as central components of Magic's origin story. Oh, right, because in the version of Limbo that Ilyana was in as a little girl, Mm -hmm. Colossus was dead, Nightcrawler was a demon, and Kitty was, well, a kitty. She was a cat person, and kind of evil. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you about the plot stuff. This issue feels kind of inessential. I do want to give a highlight to Carlos Pacheco's art in this one, though. It is so much fun. Oh, yeah, he's so—I mean, he's a great artist in general. I love Carlos Pacheco, but— seeing him draw so many different versions of these characters like that's just giving an artist a playground when you do that yeah and the the ways he's able to distinguish between them it's 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 a it's a a lot of fun visually oh very much so yeah uh we got carlos pacheco on like a bunch of this run not as much as i would have liked but uh I'm, i'm glad that he gets to draw the last issue as much as i love some of the other artists like casey jones agreed so there you go Warren Ellis' run, what's considered the third major Excalibur run after Claremont and Davis's runs. Obviously, we found that Warren Ellis himself has not always been a good person at all. Damn it, Warren. But I get why this run is as beloved as it is. Yeah, it definitely takes the book in a radically different direction um, in, in ways that I think generally work more than they don't. Yeah, like, it's not always as coherent as especially Alan Davis's run. Like, Davis was a master of just wrapping everything into everything into everything. It always felt very complete. But there's just such fun character work. There's just such a strong, consistent tone to the run. Mm -hmm. So we'll be back with Excalibur at some point with its new writer, Ben Robb, whose run I do not remember enjoying very much, but maybe that'll be different going through it more closely. But in the meantime... You've got questions. David asked on our blog... I had to walk the dog in zero-degree weather tonight. Given that it's New Year's Eve, there wasn't a lot to listen to on said walk, so I went back and listened to one of the all-time great Jay and Miles episodes, number 19, Acorns and Swords. I was struck by the frenetic pace of the episode. No one has asked about process for a long time, so I hope you'd be willing to talk a little. Maybe I'm wrong, but the episode sounded much more scripted to me than modern ones. It also seemed to be edited for speed, but maybe you two really were that fast-paced back then. I'm wondering if this is my imagination, or if you think it's real. I'm also curious if this has changed through intentional choices in the edit, or if it's just been a new groove the podcast itself has settled into. I think the answer is probably all of the above. I know both of us have definitely made a concerted effort to speak less quickly than we did at the very beginning. (laughs) Yep. And we're also much, much more experienced in the format and structure of the podcast now than we were back then. So we actually actually used to outline much more loosely, and we were still doing that around this time. So I'm guessing that Bobby countered that somewhat by editing much more tightly. 
Yeah, it's been interesting working with a number of producers over the course of the show. And certainly Bobby, our first producer, uh, was an incredibly tight editor. And, you know, obviously different styles have different pluses and minuses. But I think that was very central to the early feel of the show right there. And I think that was something we really needed early on. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, I I could just speak for myself here, Jay, but I was kind of terrified when we got started, like to have people on the Internet listen to us. And like, would they think we had interesting things to say? Would they like us? And so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the speed at which I was speaking was definitely uh, from nervousness in large part. Well, that and I think we've gotten much, much better at knowing how much of an outline we need to do the best first takes that we can. Like, I think what we do now as a first recorded draft is much, much, much tighter than it was back then. And so the really detailed level of editing really isn't as as necessary just to get it, um, you know, chunked together properly. So there's less editing overall. So what you get is something that sounds a little looser just because it's much closer to what we originally recorded. Very much so, Yeah. And, uh, boy, there's nothing to get you comfortable with doing a thing like doing it for, geez, how many years now? A lot. I, I, I think we've done it at this point, you know, 359 times, so. And that's not even counting bonus episodes. So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, If you were, in fact, going to insert J. Jonah Jameson into every X-Men comic book of the 90s, in what capacity would he appear per book? And Jay, I notice in our notes that you just had a very concise answer written down. Mine was yelling about something unrelated. Like he'd just he'd just show up, yell about something, and leave. There'd just be a brief cameo of what Jay Jonah Jameson is doing right now, and he he would basically Statler and Waldorf it. <laughs> I like this plan. Um, but I kind of fell in love with this question, and so I have. I'm not going to say good answers, but I do have answers for every one of the books at this time. My God, man. All right, so X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. J. Jonah Jameson demands to know the truth about Onslaught. And so every time any X-Men are, like, having a private conversation somewhere, he just barges in and harangues them about what's really going on and says they can't keep this secret forever. Does he, like, pop up out of bathtubs and stuff? Oh, absolutely. Like Beast. X-Factor. So the government assigns X-Factor an embedded journalist for PR purposes, but that journalist boss is J. Jonah Jameson, who keeps calling on those giant boxy cell phones from the 90s and just making horrible, implausible requests that the employee has to deal with. X-Force. J. Jonah Jameson thinks that X-Force are threats and menaces. He's not entirely wrong. Well, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. He's just kind of a jerk. He does everything he can to expose their dirty secrets— But he only gets about half of those things right, and thus the world gets to hear about things like how Boom Boom is secretly Princess Diana in disguise, uh, way before that would ever become a controversial reference in Ecstatics. I I was going to ask if that that was you referring forward to Ecstatics. I mean, a little. Also, how weird is it that Ecstatics is actually coming back? Like, Excellence number one is out in March, I think. Dang. I'm really excited. I have no idea how it's going to be in the modern era, but I'm really excited. All right. Going back to the question, Generation X. So I was thinking that since Generation X as a title perpetually forgot that Mondo existed right up until it turned out he was an evil plant clone, Mondo goes out to New York City. He just moves out there and gets an internship at the Daily Bugle alongside Phil Urich. And the comic just periodically cuts between Generation X doing their thing and Mondo and Phil in the B-plot at the Bugle. So so this is this is going to be roughly the equivalent to the... the um... 
tighten up the defense, what Aqualad's definitely doing right now. Uh, exactly, yeah, except it's Mondo, who JJJ can't stand because JJJ feels that if anybody's laid back, then they're not working hard enough. Okay, so looking at what we covered today, Excalibur. I feel like JJJ is the kind of guy that would just hate those hoity-toity Europeans, like all of them, and so he smears Excalibur as much as he can, and so the team is forced to travel to the United States to attempt to repair their reputation on the talk show circuit, and Megan, having watched all the TV in the world, is right at home, and everyone loves her mix of charm and endearing naivete. Wolverine. So it turns out, JJJ's astronaut werewolf son was originally given his susceptibility to space amulet magic by Weapon X. Cable. JJJ's distant descendant, also called J. Jonah Jameson, stows away on Grey Malkin to get the scoop on the famous Ascani son and refuses to leave Cable alone throughout all of his adventures. And so he's like JJJ in every single way, except for the added Roman numerals after his name, which basically means you just get JJJ, but like with, I don't know, a cyber gauntlet or something, just yelling at Cable all the time in the background. That's, that's a choice. So, yes, anonymous listener, there is your perhaps longer than you intended answer. You're welcome. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Here's the angry Claremontian narrator. You know, Tiernan, under the circumstances, you and Mark Sullivan really might be of more use somewhere away from the center of things. Far away. Really, really far away. Maybe, like, at home. Not touching anything. And the mic here goes to Sexy Shinobi Shaw. Wait, there's a London branch of the Hellfire Club? Just think, a whole new nation from which to learn what... I mean, confirm my extensive knowledge of doing sex. I'm sure they'll be grateful for the... Sexpertise. Did you see what I did there? That the new black king of their American counterparts can bring to the table. The sex table, which is obviously a table one has sex with. Jep, beige king across the pond, tell me, what are your favorite styles of naked? I prefer the apple pie kind, of course, but I assume you like wearing pasties... What what do you mean you hope I end up confined under London like that demon? Ah, of course. You want to show me the sex jail. And who do I find running the sex jail but the Green Queen, Mistress Amberstar? I've heard so much about you, and I'm sure you've heard so much about- Ow! What was that? Ow! I mean, ooh. Uh, yes, that's what I- Ow! Uh, yes, mistress. Shutting up now, mistress. England is complicated. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. 
Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Force confronts the Mojoverse in the Shatterstar Saga. Saga.